Before we get too far into this podcast, thank you to the folks at Racetech. Pulp 22 is the code to save. Well, it's going to be Pulp 23 real soon. Tell them you listen to Pulp MX Show. Tell them you listen to Steve Mathis. They'll give you a discount. Racetech.com, privateer proven. They've been in the game for a long, long time, and they can make your bike work better. Get your suspension oil changed. Get the right spring rate for your weight and or speed. And uh, Racetech can help you out. And also, they'll sign an NDA. And they'll do your motor work for you. Uh, they have a lot of CNC machines and uh, certainly on the cutting edge of what's working in our sport, both suspension and motors, race tech. Thanks to the folks at All Balls Racing, whether it's hot cams, whether it's hot rods, whether it's Vertex Pistons, allballsracing.com has got everything you need for your bike. Great prices as well. Go there. Go order, it through, order it through Motorsport. The, the quality of the parts are fantastic. I've used it in all of my vintage builds and uh, along with my own bike. So please check out allballsracing.com and be much more satisfied with some of the pricing and product that you can get from those guys. All right. On to the show. A Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. With your continuing gracious support of our sponsors, we're thriving at over 1,800 podcasts delivered with over 20 million downloads. Click the Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. The original moto podcast featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews, race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's the voice bringing it all to you, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Fly Racing Racer X Podcast. Thank you for listening, man. Thanks to the folks at Fly Racing. Great company, great products. Uh, they've got tons of lines of gear on, on available as well, whether it's off-road stuff for their patrol stuff. they got um, uh, low-end um, pricing ones. they got high-end, their Evo, and their light has the BOA uh, uh, on the front and the back. So that's really simple, something uh, really innovative that the guys at Fly have done. The Formula Helmet is, uh, I, I believe, the safest Best helmet out there. Read the technology from the Conehead EPS to the Rion technology. Read about it on flyracing.com uh, and tell me you can find a better helmet. They've got multiple uh, lines of that uh, as well. Just different shell constructions changes the price, but the safety features are basically all the same. Flyracing.com, of course, RJ Hampshire and Jaleek Swole are running it, and you got Joey Savacci in it, Shane McElrath. A lot of guys were in Fly Racing. Justin Brayton's still out there racing in Fly Racing. So thank you to those guys for making it happen. And uh, they've been uh, making huge leaps and gains in the sport for a long, long time. Thank you, Fly Racing. Thank you to the folks at Maxxis Tires as well, MXSTs. Developed by some guy named McGrath and uh, put in the main events by some guy named Alex Ray and Cade last year. Uh, Alex Ray will still be running the Maxxis coming up this year. Some interesting and cool things coming from those guys uh, down the line. So Maxxis.com. Mountain bike tires are amazing. So thank you to uh, Maxxis.com for all of that. And uh, if you want to support the sport, they uh, in light truck tires, mountain bike tires, trailer tires, dirt bike tires, of course, uh, MXSTs. Check out Maxxis.com. Thank you, Renthal. Uh, over there in the UK, they make some of the best products in the sport, Monster Energy Kawasaki, and, of course, Honda, and, of course, Red Bull KTM, all using Renthal. Uh, Honda hasn't used anything else since 1986, so 
you know it's pretty damn good when Honda's putting it on their bikes. Renthal.com, chains, grips, uh, sprockets, of course, and the handlebars, whether it's a 7 eighths bar for old school guys or whether it's the uh, Fat Bar 36, they'll have you covered with that. Renthal.com for more information on that. Really informative website, dealer locator as well. Uh, they got some special edition stuff coming out this year to be excited about. So Renthal.com. Uh, thank you to those guys for supporting the show. Motorsport.com and Kobo Links will tell you more about later on, but I hope you enjoy this Fly Racing Racer X podcast because I know I did. All right, on to the show. All right, now on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast to talk about uh, his big book, over 400 pages of motocross goodness, motocross the golden era, a man who uh, was there and uh, chronicled a lot of this, some great photos in his book, David Dewhurst. How are you, David? How are you, man? I'm doing really well, thank you. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Um, wow, what a book. Uh, I bought it maybe three weeks ago. I kind of pick it apart chapter by chapter. I'm not going front to back, right? Um, yep. And I'm kind of looking at it, and it's an awesome coffee table book for anybody. I guess let's just start with this. How's the sales? How's the reception? How are you doing with it? It's uh, it's going unbelievably well um it's the, we've sold over 900 books right now and uh, yeah it's just been a, a giant tsunami of sales to be honest we've had a hard time keeping up with shipping them and uh, mailing them out to everybody oh okay that's awesome good to hear and um honestly i've been around the sport a long time uh i've known a lot of names of the old days i i <laughs> I've definitely seen some of your photos before, but I never really knew your whole story, which I want to get into and, and talk to you about that. But um, look, it, it's, a, it's a different world we live in for books nowadays, for, for magazines, for books and all of that. Yep. Um, what made you want to do this? What, what happened? Were you just going through your hard drives and, and being like, this is too good? Like, What, uh, what prompted you to want to do this book? Uh, I wish it was just going through the hard drives. It was going through... Uh a giant wall of uh, three ring, <laughs> ring three inch ring binders full of Kodachrome slides. Yep. Um, so I just have thousands of images stashed away in, in binders on the wall, pretty well organized and, you know, chronicled. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it wasn't that hard of a deal, but I always looked at them and thought, you know, I should do something with this stuff. It's crazy um, just to have it sat there. So, at one point, I just decided, you know, I'll just do a, a picture book. I'll just do a big photo book mm -hmm. of all the things I did. And then the more I got into thinking about that, it was it became, uh, well, maybe I need to do some really extended captions to explain what it's all about. And then that evolved into, well, maybe I'll do a chapter or two. And <laughs> before I knew it, it was uh, we were going down that slippery slope. So. Yeah, it, w it was just something that slowly evolved, and I've been thinking about doing it for probably ten years, okay. and never, never did anything, and then really got into seriously thinking about doing it about four years ago, um, and uh, I started making this. Well, the hard part was obviously dragging all those slides out of the yeah. folders, yep. and then digitizing everything, which just became a giant nightmare. But I. I actually I made some equipment to make it easier to do and quicker to do. And uh, once I got into it, it was a lot of fun. And then I, I really got into it because it was just reliving all my memories of sure. you know, the 70s and 80s. Uh, so, yeah, it became really exciting for me just going through all the images, remembering the stories, remembering all the people. Uh, and uh, it kind of it, it just evolved from there. Then 
uh, obviously the COVID thing in a way helped because then not being able to do a lot of other things, I could concentrate on doing the book. And uh, so that's when it really took off uh, right at the beginning of beginning of COVID. Now, look, this book is huge. And like I said, over 400 pages and some, I don't know how many photos, but you probably, like any good photographer, and I know a lot of you guys, um, you probably slaved over which ones made the book, which ones didn't, because you have thousands. Um, they're not all your photos, but I would say, I don't know, it seems like 80, 80% of them are your photos, 90% of your are your photos. Um, yeah, it's, it's more like 95, okay. but, but it's yeah. over 95% of the right. pictures, yeah. So okay. how did you, did you literally go through every binder? And and, yep. and 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 then so the ones that you, I mean you must have agonized over which ones didn't make the cut right you have so many yeah it was it was painful that's actually was one of the hardest things and having gone through I mean I I literally scanned every single image I have from back in the day so it's thousands upon thousands okay um, and that's not cheap uh, either yeah that's not cheap well yeah right. and it, yeah. it's not cheap it's not easy and mm -hmm. it takes forever mm -hmm. and. Uh, so then cataloging all of that stuff and making sure I had it all straight was hard. And then, yeah, it was the the worst part is you look at that stuff for so long and you kind of lose. It's the yeah, not, yeah. can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. You, sure. you look at them in so much detail for so long, you've no idea what the hell's good anymore. There are things that you <laughs> think are cool. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, I like this one, and then I show some people some pictures, and they go, oh, this one's really cool. And and, and then I was going, well, yeah, I wasn't really thinking about that one. So, yeah, it, it became it became a nightmare of trying to figure out which yeah. ones really were the, were the good ones. So I sent a hard drive of, um, of images that, of every, pretty much everything I'd scanned um, to uh, – to Brent, uh, we went uh, we went fast, and, mm -hmm. and we we uh, we kind of talked about some of the stuff, and he he was telling me what he liked, and kind of gave me a different perspective in a way on on what was good and what wasn't good, and then actually what really kind of pushed it over the edge was once I started interviewing people the writers themselves started saying well this was cool and that you know specific yeah. events were cool oh, this yeah, was a yeah. great race that was a great so it naturally kind of it selected itself after a while but yeah the the hard part was just leaving thousands of images mm -hmm. on the on the cutting room floor as they say you know not not being able to use them no absolutely what i like too is you know all you <laughs> photographers like yourself and simon cudby and all the, the greats out there um they're, they're, you know, you, you want to get the perfect shot in focus and the perfect <clears throat> background and the foreground. I feel like on some of these ones, they're not perfectly in focus and some of them aren't um, perfect. I can think of a Brock Lever one that comes to mind, but they're bitching photos, right? Like, like yeah, they're, they're yeah. Show, they show a moment, they show something and you, forsa yeah. you forsake the uh, perfect quality of focus or whatever just to get a photo in, which I like. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, you got to remember that Every single image in this book was shot on film mm -hmm. with a manual focus camera. Yeah. Um, actually, maybe some of the later ones maybe were autofocus, but the vast majority of these images were all manual focus on Kodachrome, Ektachrome, or whatever it was. So it was a lot harder to do back in the day. No motor drives. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the you know it's a kind of a, a geeky story, but. 
the cover image of Roger DaCosta at the uh, at Donington Park in England, 1974, was actually shot on an old Rolleiflex twin lens reflex camera, which. For guys that have no you know, no clue about what that is, yeah, it was, I don't. That's a, me. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a really old clunky camera that you used to use for portraits back in the day, um, and it it had no pentaprism or anything to look through. So when you when you actually look through it was when you look through the top of the camera, everything was. They call it laterally inverted. Left, left was right, oh, right okay. was left, yeah. up was down, and down was up. <laughs> so I shot this this action picture, looking through this camera with everything going the wrong way. A really hard thing to do, um, but luckily it worked, and that that's the cover image. Um, and uh, that was that's the whole thing about all these old pictures. You know, they're not giant motor drive bursts of a mm-hmm. uh, hundred frames. It was literally trying to pick that one moment. And, you know, with a very limited amount of film, uh, you couldn't just kind of spray everything like a machine gun and hope you got something. You really had to look at it and try yeah. and analyze what it was. So, yeah, it was it was more difficult, in some ways more interesting back in the day. And, it, yeah, and it ends up with, yeah, some of them aren't quite perfectly in focus, but... Hopefully, it just captures that moment yeah. which we are really looking for. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And yeah, the, the the obstacles were so much more back in your day for shooting photos than they are now. That's for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, it's self published book. I'm guessing, right? Uh, um, and then, how do you go about that? How do you you just do you shop it around like to try to get the best cost on pages because the page quality is great. The, the the you know it's a thick book like quality of the book is is high um how do you how do you determine all that well it was is my i've done other books before uh and helped with other you know photography on a number of other books in the past they've all gone through big publishing houses Mm -hmm. and whatever um so yeah the the problem with that is they end up taking they take the risk of the thing being success but they also take a huge chunk of the profit Mm -hmm. so i didn't want to do all this work and put all this time years of time and effort into it and then basically have uh, you know essentially no profit out of it so i ended up doing it on my own entirely um in fact i just sent off the check for the printing yesterday which was a painful day Mm -hmm. but um but yeah so they uh, I, I shopped around all over the place. And then a good friend of mine, Don MD, who uh, some people might know, he won Day- Daytona back in the day, road racing. Um, good friend of mine, he's done a bunch of other books himself. And uh, he put me in touch with the, his printer. And we kind of, we, you know, we it worked out pretty much instantly. Everything was cool. The only problem is that in the four years that we sat writing and doing all this stuff the price of paper went up astronomically and uh, so it costs a lot more money to do than we originally thought it was going to cost and people have complained people complained about the price you know i'm selling it for 149 right now Mm -hmm. um but unfortunately that just reflects today's reality of printing paper and everything else it's uh, it's just got out of control and it's one of the reasons why magazines are getting smaller by the day and going out of business by the day, you know, paper and distribution is just a crazy expensive thing to do. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it was a gamble, but I, I just, I, something inside me told me there was, there was just a, 
a market, a longing for for this. I, I don't know how big the market is, but uh, mm-hmm. ho- hopefully there are three thousand people around the world who can buy the books I printed. And uh, I say so far it's going really well. Yeah, I mean, and I guess I should mention too. Like I paid full price for this book. I don't know you. I didn't. This isn't a paid podcast. Yep. I just I yep. love I love the book and. It is expensive, I'll give you that, but it's also not a book that you read and then just put on a shelf and forget about it. You leave it out. You have it in an office. You show people who come over. You put it in your garage. You you know, like, yeah. it's a, sort of a timeless book, right? And, and so, yeah, I mean, it is a little high, sure, but it, it's well, well, it's big. It's It's had great images, and yeah, it'll last forever. And the stories that you tell in it aren't outdated, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's my pitch for people to spend the 150 bucks. Um I, I, yeah, I really love it. It, 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 it's, uh, it was, it was super cool. And for people who want to know if you're, uh, getting into it, motocrossthegoldenera.com. Go there, motocrossthegoldenera.com. Follow David on social as well. On Instagram, that's kind of how I found it. I don't know, must have shown up in some feed of mine or something. Um, you got Brad Lackey to do the forward. Uh, what was yeah. the purpose of that? Uh, was he a specific friend of yours or somebody that sort of encapsulated what you were talking about or why Brad? Um, no, I, well, I, I knew Brad from back in the day, mm-hmm. um, back when he was in Europe, race, racing in Europe, because that's where I started in, in England. Um, so I knew him, and I covered a lot of races back back then, so I did know him. Can't call him a friend, or he wasn't back then. He has become that, uh, the nicest guy on earth. And, yeah, I mean, he kind of he encapsulated all, all of the things that I was trying to do in this book. It was, uh, you know, his career spanned almost the entire period that the book covers, which is essentially from 1970 through 1986. Um, so his career almost covered that entire period. Um, and it, it just seemed like, uh, he just seemed like the perfect guy to, mm-hmm. you know, few others of maybe, well, maybe with the exception of Jeff Ward, maybe he had a, a, a long career, but, but he, uh, Brad's career was long, and it covered that entire period, so it seemed okay. very appropriate that he sure. did that. Uh, I have uh, a few chapters that I liked. Uh, um, so about a year ago, I got a tip that the Honda factory bikes that they store in the warehouse in Torrance will be moving, and yep. so I've always wanted to go do something on that. So I, I gone to hold of Dave Arnold, and we did a Racer X video from the Honda warehouse, and yep. – um, we we did a uh, we did a really cool two part video and a podcast and I just geeked out over all of the bikes they have from from Gary Jones all the way up to to, to Carmichael. So yeah, uh, I liked your chapter that you did on the works bikes. You also you know you took some of them apart and got a little closer than I got to do. So I love that part. And then growing up, my favorite rider was Mark Barnett. I rode an RM fifty and then an RM eighty, and I love Barnett. And I've done a podcast with him and I've spoken to him here and there. He's a reclusive guy doesn't do a lot of media and also for as great as he was uh i feel like there's not a ton of photos around him he wasn't a southern california guy in the magazines right so i saw yeah. photos that you did of him that i've that i've never seen before and and i'm like wow like i've read all these magazines over and over and over and some of your photos look familiar and some of them don't and for the bomber one i felt like i'm like i hadn't seen that i hadn't seen that i hadn't seen, you know so those are two of my chapters that I enjoyed um, that you did. What What about you? What was your favorite one, or what ones did you enjoy putting together? 
Well, it's, that's really hard because <laughs> I, I guess mean, every, right? yeah. almost every one of them, for different reasons, has a you know a, a soft spot for 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 me. Um, Barnett was was cool because back in the day, you know, when I was a you know a young kid t- shooting pictures at the Supercross races, he all, always seemed such an intimidating character. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was his. Uh, that was his go-to, right? You, right. You, you didn't mess with the bomber. Um, so, and I, ne- I was never really friends with him, never got close to him during the racing back mm-hmm. in the day. So when I finally got in touch with him on the phone, I was, I was, yeah, I was nervous when I first called him and a little intimidated, thinking, oh, God, here we go. Um, and he turned out to be the sweetest, I mean, I don't want to ruin his reputation, but he turned out to be the, the sweetest, nicest, most helpful, cooperative guy I, I probably talked to the whole time. Yeah. Um, There's no ego. Know, he's, he's, co- very, he's very modest about his racing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you would never, ever know that he was a multi-time, you know, motocross champion, um, let alone, you know, this guy with this huge this huge persona of, you know, I'll kill you or, you know, do anything it takes to run over you and win the race. But no, he was, he was so sweet and nice. Um, you know, he since, you know, called me a number of times and we talked about stuff being very helpful. And so that was in some ways, one of the, one of the cooler things to kind Mm, of realize, realize, but, um, I mean, I mean, every single one of them, like you, the Honda story, I'm a, you know, I'm a moto engineering kind of geek so getting to look inside that not literally but look at some of the details of that bike were it was mm-hmm. fascinating and to hear some of that stuff so i i love the mechanical side of things um every one of the riders i mean you talk to david bailey and david is just the most amazing he's encyclopedic he knows mm-hmm. He knows everything. He remembers every freaking detail of everything he ever <laughs> he did. Yeah, he does. So, so that's like going down a giant rabbit hole with David. You know, you'll say, "Well, why did you do so and so with the bike?" And then he'll start talking about, "Well, you know, we moved the foot pegs back two millimeters, and that let me put more weight on the handlebars, and that just changed the handle." And and he'll go off just talking mm-hmm. about all this minutiae, which to me was fascinating and incredible. Brock Glover, the same way. Glover's the same, Brock, yeah. yeah. Brock Glover remembers every single detail of, of his life. It's uh, it's kind of weird at times to hear it, but he knows everything that ever happened to him. And then, you know, he'll tell you what tire pressures he was using at Unadilla on whatever date. You know, that's the kind of guy he is. Yep. But again, all like the bomber, so nice and helpful um just great guys ricky johnson i mean geez you you can't meet a nicer guy um you know we've become pretty good friends and uh i you know i'm glad to say because it's uh, it's great to talk to him because he's just the funniest guy on earth all these people that just you know gave the time i i can't say any one of them was my favorite but um Mm-hmm. You know, they all in their different way were, were very significant guys. You know, going back to Barnett, yeah. I, I've become good friends with Johnny O and Wardy and Glover, right? And a little bit with Hannah. And I've, I've been able to know these guys over the years. And it's pretty cool for a geek like myself, a moto geek like myself. And going back to Barnett, like these guys are all timers and the reverence they have for Bomber. 
like we're already saying, like I, I, I just couldn't beat the guy. Like I just, he's just an animal. Yeah. When I finally took him down, like I, just, you know, Johnny O, just like, you know, I, he just, he, he's, he, nobody rode more than him. Nobody was in better shape than him. You know, we would be faster maybe, but we knew at the end of the moto and and Hannah, who doesn't, you know, publicly doesn't have a lot of respect for a lot of his competitors. Privately, he does, but publicly, he does. Yeah. He he uh, he talks about you know he doesn't say anything negative about Barney, right? Like. There's a reverence among the greats about Barnett, who only has one Supercross title, came up short three yeah. times, could have had a lot more, but came up short. There's a reverence among the greats, uh, RJ2, for Barnett, that I feel is is an undercurrent of that. So it's another yeah. thing that I always think about when I think about Barnett. Like the, the all-timers, the, 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 the dudes, they know that Mark was the real deal, you know? Yeah. No, that's true. I think I think it was Glover, and excuse me if I get this wrong, but I think it was Glover uh, that said not very long ago that he thought that Mark was probably the most underrated uh, motocross racer of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I I don't know why he became why he went that way, why he became so underrated. I mean, geez, the guy was so talented. Yeah, but. Uh, but maybe because he was so quiet, yeah. not so crazy outgoing, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a Hannah or a Ricky Johnson in that respect. So no. maybe that worked against him. I yeah. don't know. And I think he's just down in Alabama at his grandma's farm, just riding forty minute motos and not talking to anybody, right? So Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the... So okay, so when I write a feature story for Racer X magazine or even even some of these uh, long form stories on Racer X online there's always things I got to leave out. There's always things I can't put in. They don't work. They don't fit. Uh, um, there's t- there's time constraints in a magazine. Whatever it is, there's always things that I'm like, ah, damn it. So for you, look, it's over 400 pages, but, I mean, maybe it could have gone six or, or five. Or, or maybe you didn't have the right photo for the story you wanted to tell or enough photos. Is there anything that you left on the cutting room table that, you know, just kind of pains you to do that? Oh yeah, I mean, let's. Uh, I cry about that daily. <laughs> um, I, it's it's four hundred eighty pages total for the, you know over seven hundred pictures in the in the book. I interviewed. Um, well, I don't know how many people I interviewed. To be really honest, I I, I videotaped interviews with over forty five people. I think I interviewed over 60 people in total over the phone, doing others over the phone, but most of them I did in person. Um, So, yeah, there were so many people. It's just, it was, that was the painful part, was guys that I had so much respect for um, and guys that not everybody would know about. Um, Ed Scheidler, for instance, a guy, a name that, you know, 90% of the viewers will never, never have heard of before. But Ed Scheidler was probably one of the most influential, one of the more influential people, certainly in motocross. And he was an engineer that worked for Yamaha. Um, back in the day, he was uh, Pierre Carsmaker's factory mechanic back in the day. He was mechanic for so many top guys, but then he went on to become the development guy and he's responsible for pretty much every modern day YZ that you see out there Mm -hmm. from, from the late seventies on, he was the point guy on developing almost all those motorcycles. The guy is brilliant, an amazing guy. Um, and you know, I did a great interview with him, but he was just one of those guys I had to leave out. It was, uh, that was painful. 
uh, you know, lots of other guys, Johnny O. I, I mean, I wanted to do Johnny. I wanted to do so much. I wanted to do Jimmy Wynott so much because he was such a character. Um, but, you know, there's just so much you could do. And there's a physical limit to how big the book can be. Uh, you know, 480, 500 pages, we were – we were close to the physical limit of bind, <laughs> sure. just for binding, binding the book. Yeah, any, yeah, yeah. And any bigger than that, the thing would have started falling apart instantly. So we we knew we, we, we were limited to that. And at that point, I, want, I didn't want to do a lot of short little stories. I decided if I'm going to do this, I'm going all in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, most of the chapters on the riders are 20 pages at least each. So, you know, they're fairly lengthy and fairly in-depth. Um, that obviously meant that some other people had to get left out of the book. You know, Mark Blackwell, who mm -hmm. obviously another great guy in the industry, both riding and uh, as a as a, an industry insider. I did an interview with him. In fact, I just chatted with him yesterday. Couldn't get him in the book either. It was that was the hard part. There were just so many people, and uh, you know, you can't do them all. Yeah, you you just can't make it. Uh, did you did you take a lot of black and white photos. Like, are they are the the photos in this book that are black and white? Are they are they black and white, or was it a cost thing? Yeah. Um, um, you know no. what I mean? Or did you shot them in black and white? Everything, you know, if it's black and white in the book, that's that's okay. what I shot. Okay. Because back in the day, you you mm -hmm. took you could only shoot so much stuff. You had, you know you had a pouch full of you had two pouches, one full of tri -X black and white film. And you had <laughs> one full of ectochrome. And so you just, you would alternate. So if you, if you were doing uh, back in the day, but I was probably a lot of the time I was shooting for a couple of Japanese magazines and some magazines in Europe, as well as some here in the States. So they would say, we really need a cover or a color lead for, for the story. So you'd be looking to try and do some vertical image in color and then maybe some big wide image for a lead shot. And then most of the rest of the thing you'd be shooting on black and white. So you'd be swapping between two cameras trying to figure out, you know, what was happening. So you'd end up with maybe a great shot that you wish was in color, but you just happen to okay. catch it in black and white. Yeah, because I always go through this argument with Simon Cudby, and I don't like black and white photos. My wife does, and other people do, and I get it. Um, I just I love color photos, and so some of these photos that you have are remarkable, and I'm like, oh, I wish that was color or whatever, right? Um, yeah. So it's just one of those things. So yeah, but back in the day, you like you said, you're deciding that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. You have a photo of the Daytona 84 finish line with Johnny O and RJ from an angle I've never seen it from. So that's super yeah. cool because that's an ultimate uh, – it's sort of a classic finish line uh, story, right, for people who were there yeah. and magazines and everything else. Um, so, yes, yeah, so again, people need to check this out and, and check it out for themselves. And some of the some of the photos are simply remarkable. A lot of the interviews are great too. There's a lot of um, – uh, you can tell you've, you've got – you've dug some good tidbits from the different people in the industry for sure. Um, what uh, when you came to America uh, and you were did you work for any publication in general? Did you just freelance the whole time? And I feel like I've seen your photos, maybe not MXA, but across the range of the different magazines. Is that yeah, yeah? I, yeah? Well, it started you know because back in back in England, I went to college and did the whole uh, industrial commercial photography thing in college. So mm -hmm. I was. I was kind of a, a trained photographer, whatever that means. And then I couldn't get a job doing any of that kind of stuff. And I ended up working for a newspaper in England. 
and uh, we, it was just a local local provincial newspaper that came out every week. And the boss's son at the time I was racing and doing all that kind of thing. And the boss's son um, of the paper got interested and we bought a CZ and uh, he joined the club that I was running at the time and, and started racing with us. And I convinced the, the boss, the boss that, you know, there was really a need for a weekly newspaper mm -hmm. in England that just dealt with motocross and trials and things. So we literally started trials and motocross news uh, which was a weekly a weekly newspaper, which at its height was selling like forty thousand copies a week. Believe it or not, I mean it was huge. It was a giant newspaper of, of, for uh, for such a small market, and uh, so I was doing that, and I was writing the technical stories, riding the bike, shooting the pictures, doing all that kind of stuff. And I got offered a job uh, by then editor at Dirt Bike, uh, Len Weed. Okay. And he, Len, used to come over for the Scottish Six Days trial in England every year, and I got to know him through that. And he offered me a job being doing photography and test riding, which I accepted. And then a couple of weeks later, he called me up and said, sorry, we've we've all been fired. And they, you know, I guess <laughs> Roland Hines fired everybody, and, uh, and that was the end of that. But he... Uh, Len felt so bad about letting me down. He he was hired up by Cycle Guide magazine to write stories, freelance stories for them. And he knew they were looking for a technical editor at the time. So he uh, he proposed my name and thank God they said, yeah, let's give this a try. So um, in 19, beginning of 1980, I came over from England and became technical editor at Cycle Guide magazine. Okay. And I was doing photography and test riding bikes and doing all that kind of stuff. And that's how I made it over here. So, uh, and then a couple of years later, um, we hired up Ron Lawson, who's now the, mm -hmm. the editor at Dirt Bike magazine. Yeah. And Ron, Ron Lawson joined cycle guide and he kind of took over as the motocross editor and i did more of the photography and technical stuff at that point and uh you know we kind of went from there and then in 80 the end of 84 85 i kind of left the magazine and went out on my own doing purely freelance but uh but yeah for for all those beginning and middle of 85 i was just doing most of the supercross and outdoor nationals uh, just touring around with the guys. So, oh, that's like cool. Couple, and, and that was yeah. a total freelance position. Just hey, you know, here's yep. some, here's yep. some photos, Jody and Super Hunky, and take a look type deal. Like, yeah, yeah. That's, that was exactly it. Just uh, pure freelance. Because one of my friends was doing it for MXA in the early '90s, sort of covering East Coast stuff, and he he said that he would send his photos in. And they would get used or not, but he would never get them back. And he's like, oh, I, I just I never. I've lost all these photos. MXA has them. They never sent them back. And he's, you know, it's one of those regrets, right? So, but it wasn't like that necessarily for you where you would lose your photos? No, usually I'd send in prints. I usually kept all the negatives. Okay. Um, you send in prints. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, as I said earlier on, most of the stuff I did was for some Japanese magazines mm -hmm. and some European magazines. Um, and, they were usually pretty good at sending stuff back if if you know if I send them originals, uh, but usually I tried to keep them keep all the stuff because I I really wanted to I didn't want to give it all away and and lose it. No, in fact, sure. one of the saddest one of the saddest things was that say from seventy 
the end of 75, 76 through 1980, all those years in England, I went to more races than I cared to think about and, you know, world championship rounds and national championships and all that kind of stuff. And they were all on file at the magazine and then at the newspaper and, uh, Charles Motocross News moved from mm-hmm. its original office to another one, and some some clever person decided that there was too much space being taken up by all these images, so they threw everything in a dumpster. Oh, jeez. So, so there were years and years of uh, cool pictures just thrown away, which just makes me cry to this day. But, uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing happens, unfortunately. Yeah, really, right? Some, some of that stuff is just, just, yeah, just epic, I Pr- imagine, right? Priceless. Yep, priceless. I, I see some some mid eighties uh, uh, GP stuff from you. Did you make a few trips over? I guess in in your time here and there. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I did, and um, so, some of them some of them are not mine. Uh, some of them are from uh, friends of mine. Uh, some of whom worked at Trials and Motocross News. Uh, Alex Hod- Alex Hodgkinson and Jack mm-hmm. Burnicle were two of those guys. Um, but yeah, I went over for a few races, uh, but most of most of what I shot in the 80s was was here in the u.s in supercross or uh some outdoor national races that was uh, that was most of what i did what was a uh what was a cool what was a couple two three four however you want it, what was a cool uh few opportunities that that stand out for you over the years of of shooting like you know i see that i don't know if it was a magazine shoot or what it was but you have you know all the members of the 85 honda team sitting on their bikes and uh, yeah, it looks like it was at Honda Land. Um, so, is there something like that that sticks to mind? Of but you're just like, I can't believe I'm here as a fly on the wall taking photos. Yeah, that that was. I got hired um, by Honda to shoot shoot that little press kit oh, image okay. for yep, yep. all the press kit images for them. Roxy Rockwood was a famous uh, announcer and PR guy who did a lot of flight track, and I've been shooting some flight track races, and he hired me up to come and do all that and uh yeah that was that was one of those moments where you go i just can't believe i'm here because hondaland was uh for those that that aren't really aware was a, a place out in the simi valley here on the northeast end of uh north north end of los angeles mm-hmm. where it was a private track that was huge i mean it was just a giant place with huge hills uh, the, one of the biggest motor, uh, supercross tracks you've ever seen. Some huge tabletops and things that back in the day were just, you know, even David Bailey talks about how crazy some of the track was. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so being there and seeing them and then just seeing the guys goofing off in between in between the practice sessions, they just go up on the hills and just do crazy crazy wild stuff just for fun so yeah that was that was probably one of the one of the, the most memorable days of all just being at uh, a honda line before we get too far into this podcast thank you to the folks at race tech pulp 22 is the code to save well it's going to be pulp 23 real soon tell me listen to pulp mx show tell me listen to steve mathis to give you a discount racetech.com privateer proven they've been in the game for a long long time and they can make your bike work better get your suspension oil change get the right spring rate for your weight and or speed and uh, race tech can help you out and also they'll sign an nda and they'll do your motor work for you uh they have a lot of cnc machines 
and uh, certainly on the cutting edge of what's working in our sport, both suspension and motors, race tech. Thanks to the folks at All Balls Racing, whether it's hot cams, whether it's hot rods, whether it's vertex pistons, allballsracing.com has got everything you need for your bike. Great prices as well. Go there. Go order, it through, order it through Motorsport. The, the quality of the parts are fantastic. I've used it in all of my vintage builds and along with my own bike. So please check out allballsracing.com and be much more satisfied with some of the pricing and product that you can get from those guys. All right. On to the show. So and then those photos, I guess, are property of Honda because they hire you for that. And then I've seen these photos in a bunch of magazines <clears throat> over the years, whether it's High Torque stuff or Peterson or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got to keep some of the original images, which is what you see there. Um, but uh, yeah, Honda, Honda to keep a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. Memorable races for you? Is there a couple that stand out? Um, yeah, the the Bailey Johnson Anaheim race um, yep. was was just you know that was the the race. Well one of the races of all time just because to see two teammates going at it together on hondas um you know they they shook hands before the race and said you know we're not going to take yet either of us out but uh but it's you know we'll we'll do whatever it takes and they did bang each other and run into each other and do some some crazy stuff and but the crowd was just absolutely on their feet the whole race. It was one of those you you just never, ever forget. And as you're um, shooting, as you're in the moment, you're also realizing this, right? You're like, this is... Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's the hard part. When and I've had this, I had this conversation with somebody, a photographer friend the other day. When you're shooting at the race, any race, you kind of, you're in this weird zone where you see stuff going on, but you're not really in touch with the whole context of it. You, you're watching, what you're watching is just instant moments of the race rather than the whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, you hear the crowd screaming and yelling and you realize, yeah, these guys are going at it and they're close together. But it's not quite like being a spectator because you're just working so hard to try and capture the moment. So we, you know, we both agreed, the, this other friend of mine and I, that, yeah, you you kind of miss some of the race, but you see you see those instant moments. And some of those are in the book, some captured moments of uh, the guys running into each other and, you know, almost going down and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's uh, not quite like being a spectator. It's hard to, hard to explain. You have a photo from that 86 race that I'm guessing, I mean, I think back in the day, you know, nowadays photographers can only stand in certain places. I'm guessing back in the day you guys could stand wherever you wanted to mm. on the track, right? Or maybe not. not, not no, okay. there, were, there, were, there were no go zones. Um, not like it is today, but no, there were obviously were for safety reasons. Yeah. But the, tra- the tracks were a lot different then. And uh, yeah, so it, it, was, it was easier in a way to shoot back then, definitely. You have a photo, like there's there's a couple epic uh, photos from that race, and it's it's um, one of them Johnson or Bailey in the air, the other one on lower, and you must have like been standing right next to the high torque guy when it was you because you it's slightly different. Your photo is slightly different from their photo, but it's the same kind of shot. And I just thought to myself, like David standing right there, the high torque guy, you know, made it an MXA and and dirt bike or whatever, and you were, you know. The next guy three feet over. It's just it's cool. Yeah. It's cool to see that because 
these are in these images are burned in my mind and I, and, and uh, but yours are slightly different so it's kind of neat yeah. yeah yeah no that's weird too because i'll go through, i'll be looking at you know say I'm on pinterest or something looking at pictures and i go whoa hang on a second that's mine and then i go no it's not mine because <laughs> i i was 10 feet from there but it looks just like mine yep. what was really weird was back in when i early on when i was shooting back in england in the early 70s um and i'd go to i was doing a lot of road race stuff for the weekly newspaper you know motorcycle papers back then and uh, i was really young and didn't really know anybody and was too scared to talk to anybody mm -hmm. and then a couple of years ago i uh, i started seeing pictures from some of those races from a guy who's since published two books of similar to mine historical mm -hmm. books of road racing and i realized that i was literally stood next to this guy <laughs> at, at half a dozen races because we have almost identical pictures so i've be, i've become kind of friends with him on facebook since then but uh, it's that's kind of weird how you yeah you, you do get some of those, and you do, you don't realize until years later. There's an epic shot of '86 Carlsbad, RJ, clear whole shot, all by himself in the first turn. I think it was in MXA or something. And yep. you are standing to the left of that, and your photo <laughs> you can see every all of the other riders, right? Like, yep. And the other photos that I've seen are just RJ, like maybe with the most coolest style ever. Uh, drifting into the turn and there's your photo from i don't know you know the other side of the track or 50 feet away that shows yep. you know he wasn't all by himself ah just little things like that to me are so cool in your book yeah yeah it's yeah and it's and it's all down oh a lot of it's down to luck and just being at the yep. right place at the right time and sometimes you you know you you're trying to get a different image like there's a picture in the brock glover chapter where uh, from Carlsbad, from that same track, where I decided everybody was taking that same picture in turn one as they come around that long left-hander. And I decided I'm not going to stand with those guys. I'm going to try and mm -hmm. do something else. So I went to turn two, which was a right-hander right after that, after a short straight. Well, in that in that race, it was uh, Brock got the, the whole shot of all whole shots, on his Yamaha, and uh, from uh, I think it's uh, Carlquist is uh, mm -hmm. the guy behind him, and he's got like a ten or fifteen bike length lead on everybody else. And in the first turn, it doesn't look like much of a whole shot, but from where I was in the second corner, you can see he's just a mile ahead of everybody. Right. Again, it was pure luck, yep. but it's but it was just. Uh, trying to look for somewhere else at a slightly different angle that uh, that paid off. Yeah, it's all, uh, like you said, I, I have many photographer friends, and yeah, they'll just be like, uh, dude, I was just standing there. I got lucky. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. that's really yeah. really what it is. There's uh, photos. So we all know uh, Johnson wore the, uh, the shorts, Life's a Beach shorts over his pants at the Rodale Cup. You have a great yeah. photo of that. But then you have another photo, I assume, from the Rodale Cup with a different pair of shorts on. And I'm like, wow. I didn't know he did this twice. I didn't know he wore another pair over top of his pants. So. Yeah, there you go. He, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, that was that was a, a, a crazy event. The whole <clears throat> the whole event was uh, was kind of an interesting thing. I mean, the way they the way they were doing the that the start sequence where it was the yeah. whoever won the whoever won the the uh, 
heat race back then went to the back of the line they got last gate pick yeah um they were trying to make it uh, a little different difficult difficult for the guys who were obviously uh, faster and uh, that turned into just a weird debacle but uh, <laughs> yeah. but and Ricky Ricky to this day still jumps up and down and gets all excited and screams and yells about that whole that whole event because he was the only guy right that actually raced properly all the other guys would be out in the lead and then they'd have a quote mechanical issue that slowed them down on the last lap and uh, yeah. just so they so they didn't win the race and they didn't get bumped to the back of the field yeah. but uh, I just, yeah that was a, I just had never known that RJ wore another pair and there you are there's your photo you're in the pits yeah. with them right and it's just things like that where I'm flipping through your book and I'm like that's so cool so pure luck yeah i know <laughs> what uh why would you get out of it why would you uh, what would you do after after you hung up the the boots for traveling um, well, I was I was doing a lot of stuff in the in the business. I, I worked a lot for Yamaha and did uh, I did a lot of photography for them, doing uh, more street bike things. I, okay. I wrote yeah. a lot of stuff for them, and and I got and I kind of got burnt out a little bit on the whole motorcycle thing. And then mm -hmm. a friend of mine who had been my editor at, at Cycle Guide became an editor at car and driver magazine mm -hmm. and uh, he introduced me to all the people there and i ended up shooting some car things and that kind of snowballed and i just kind of got fascinated by cars which is very different to motorcycles when it comes to shooting pictures um so i i got into that and then there was you know to be honest mm -hmm. there was more money in the car business than there was in the motorcycle business back then particularly in the early 80s when the bike business was in a, a decline so yeah i just got into the car business oh, so okay. for many many years i was just shooting for you know people like toyota ended up for toyota and lexus honda shooting for all those kinds of people and got to travel the world and shoot a lot of car pictures oh so you're still traveling though you didn't get off the road that way yeah. oh no yeah. no i got to travel away i went to japan 17 times in in quite a few years there just shooting pictures of cars for instance right. and you know i was traveling all the time uh, and and have been traveling until very recently. I've been traveling a lot, doing events and things for for car companies. So that's what what kept me going financially. But then I just I just missed the motorcycle thing. I was always still obviously interested in it, and uh, I still have a a, a, a seventy eight three ninety Husky in the in the garage that I've raced infrequently, and uh, I just wanted to get back into the business. So the whole motorcycle getting back into motorcycles and the book thing they all kind of came together at one one time and that's uh, that's kind of what propelled me forward into doing the the whole book right and it's funny you you know your book's called the golden era and i started covering the sport in 96 <clears throat> and i'm still doing it now and uh grew up with it obviously but it's it's an appropriate title david the golden era you have these works bikes and and you profile the hondas and you have these personalities <clears throat> that are pretty crazy back in the day. We all know the stories. You witnessed them. I've heard them. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a hippie generation, right, coming out of the uh, late yep. 70s, and and these guys were loose off the track uh, as they were on. Nobody really thought of it as a career. A lot of these guys were like, hey, I'm just, you know, racing dirt bikes and partying and, and you know, doing whatever. And, and then, you know, you get into today, and the riders aren't as accessible. The bikes are all the same. The, you know, the four strokes have come in, and, made racing easier there's there's you know there's, it's just 
the golden era, and I, I, you know, both of us, I guess, right now, David, we'll talk about walking uphill to school both ways. Um, but it really was. It really was. It, it, it seemed like a great, fun time, and I, I've got to know these guys personally, and the stories they've told, and the the bikes they rode, and the things that happened. What a what a time for our sport, you know? Yeah, it was it was uh, it was amazing. I was so blessed to be there, um, both from the rider personality standpoint and from a technical standpoint. And and it was driven. The book was driven. The the whole nineteen seventy to eighty eighty the end of eighty five mm-hmm. uh, that 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 time period was chosen because. It was the beginning of, um, well, it was the beginning of the American, you know, motocross championship. The whole series basically started then, but it was uh, mechanically, it was that was the point where two strokes suddenly really started to take over, mm-hmm. and the mechanical advances were so huge and so rapid. It was hard to keep up with how quickly things were changing mechanically. Um, you know, from long travel suspension and, you know, two strokes. I mean, it's hard to imagine, but, you know, up until just early, a little earlier than that, expansion chambers and things were not a thing. And you know, those kinds of technologies were just kind of were in their infancy, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the sport changed so dramatically. Uh, you know, guys today have no just can't even comprehend how fast it was changing. It was literally week to week. So one week, some guys would show up and it was six inches of suspension travel. And the next week it was literally nine inches of suspension travel. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, uh, well, they would was, just move their shocks. They would just be like, Hey, we, we moved our shocks five millimeters. They work a little better. We're going to do that. Hey, McCarty grab the welder. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, literally, yeah, 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 literally. And then, and and, and in the in the store, one of the, the the more interesting things for me because I, you know, I look at this today and 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 see possible similarities. Roger DeCosta, um, back in the day when he was a factory Suzuki rider with Sylvain Gabors, um, they their friend was Lucien Tilkins, another Belgian guy. He was the guy that developed the monoshock that became, you know, what you now know on Yamahas. And when he was developing that before he sold the idea to, to Yamaha, he, uh, he borrowed, well, he, he developed a bike based on his, with a CZ chassis that he got from Sylvain Gabors, who was then a factory CZ guy. And a couple of years later, he managed to get a, a used factory Suzuki frame from Sylvain Gabors when he was w- with the factory. Mm-hmm. The factory didn't know anything about this. And uh, so he modified the chassis to <laughs> accept his yeah. mon- monoshock suspension. So DeCosta and Gabors go out to a, a track with Lucian Tilkins to, to test this thing. And they ride up and down on this really rough track in Belgium and come back and go, this thing's amazing. We can go so much faster in a straight line. It's crazy. And at the time, Tilkins' idea was that the secret to, the, to Monoshock was the fact that all the suspension inputs were being directed straight up to the steering head through mm-hmm. the frame. He thought that was somehow magical and 
you know, the, the secret to it all. Yeah. Well, but now look, you know, all these years later, looking back on it, DeCostas goes, but what we didn't realize at the time was that the system gave us 50% more wheel travel than we had before. And all the advantage really was you know, most of the advantage came from just way more suspension yeah. travel. Yeah. But we didn't realize it. We had no clue. And they didn't have any clue until quite a bit later on that it was just suspension travel. So sometimes these mechanical changes happen and people just don't quite realize what it is and why it is they you know they just well we accept it but that stuff was happening so rapidly um at that point and the things were just changes were massive mm -hmm. uh unlike today where you know it's like well we'll we'll chrome plate the triple clamps and that'll make <laughs> us go quicker or whatever the hell it is i yeah. don't know but so yeah it was a fascinating time and then the the end of the end of the period 85 i chose mm -hmm. just because that was the end of the factory bike era in in the u.s and uh, all of a sudden we went to production base base bike so that was the arbitrary cutoff date for right. for uh, for the end of the book. Some great shots of Wardy's '83 that weren't really around in the magazines, and it was pretty. Cowie had a pretty good thing going water cooling and disc brakes. They were early on that, and yeah. um, I I saw some photos from the of his bike that I was like, oh look at that thing. It was tricker than I remember, you know, as a kid. Like obviously the Hondas always attracted everything, but uh, you have a photo of Brad Lackey's championship bike. I've seen it around at California events. Uh, does he have that? Did you travel up there? Yeah, that was. That he has his own little little museum of oh, his okay. his bikes, his own collection. That's just in the garage at his house up near San Francisco. Um, so yeah, when I when I first interviewed Brad, I went up to his house and uh, we were sat in his garage, and that bike is just uh, yeah just leaning against the wall. Um, <laughs> He lost that by that bike after the after the race after the last race in Luxembourg, kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, and he never saw it again. And then um, a friend called him and said, "Hey, I think we got might have your bike, and uh, or this this bike might I know where it is." And uh, Brad had no idea where it had gone to; it just disappeared, and wow. uh, he ended up buying it back from this guy in Belgium, which was uh, a huge relief to him. So, yeah, he's got a cool collection no, all the way good. from early BSAs that he raced and stuff like that, all the way through Kawasaki's and Suzuki's, the whole the whole thing. Another tough question for you, David. Uh, by the way, the book, uh, Motocross, The Golden Era, check it out, 400 and, what would you say, 85 pages? 400? 480 pages. 480 yep. pages, uh, motocrossthegoldenera.com, check it out. Uh, another tough question for you. Is there a couple of photos that stand out that you're just, you know, like you mentioned the cover photo of Roger, um, but is there a couple of photos that you're just like, I love it? Like if it was shot by anybody else, you'd be like, this is amazing? Um, yeah, I mean, there are lots of, you know, it's, it's the same. As I said earlier, you look at them so long and you kind yep, of go, yep. like, I love them all. How, you know, they're all my children. How can you not like <laughs> them all? Um I, the one on the back cover of the book is kind of interesting to me. Um, that's that was shot in 1972. Uh, the, it's a guy called Pete Remington riding a, a 250cz back in England, muddy race. And f for me, it's 
just it just somehow captures the whole fun of the sport it's muddy miserable conditions the guy sliding out of a corner on the cz all sideways and he just got the biggest smile on his face you know open face helmet obviously back then but he just got the biggest grin on his face and to me that just kind of captures what it is we all we're all thinking about when we're riding motocross bikes and that's that so it means a lot to me for, for that reason alone um, good point. That's, that's one of the that's one of the more important ones for me. Yeah, I just just looked at it. And I, I like you said. Yeah, I uh, I see it. Uh, Steve Simon's chapter is pretty cool too. As a guy that a kid that you know didn't know much about him, uh, didn't know you know obviously developed the upside down fork, but yeah, yeah, didn't and had some anti cavitation devices right on with Glover and RJ yeah. back in the yeah. day. So that's kind of neat little uh, uh, chapter to, for me to, to yeah. read. So yeah, um, uh... oh, sorry. What what else? No, it's okay. Carry on. Uh, yeah, it's it's really really cool. Um, anything else that we did I did you want to mention? Did I fail to touch on something here? No, I, I you know as I said, I just I just love to thank all the people. There are so many people that helped me make this book you know happen, and uh, I just want to thank them publicly for uh, for the time and the energy, the writers and people who don't appear in the book, but. Uh, help with so much in background information i'm the, the fascinating thing too is that now now the book's selling you know we sold over 900 books everywhere mm-hmm. from new zealand japan all through europe everywhere and now i'm getting emails from people going oh well you really should do a story about this so now i'm getting all these <laughs> all these ideas and you know somebody somebody texted me this morning going oh yeah well i was friends with the arlo england back in the day and i remember them testing uh, the, uh, the the suspension compression start system back back in the 70s they had some mechanical wire operated thing for compressing the front forks trying to trying to get uh, better starts and everything. oh yeah so, so you know this was in the this again you know during the golden era in the 70s they were testing the system that's now on every motocross bike you know in in race condition so um yeah so it's kind of fascinating to keep getting all these stories and interesting tidbits that i wish i'd had you know four years ago but yeah, you're, you're like look man i'm not doing another 150 dollar uh hardcover 400 page book yeah. i don't have the time in me so yeah yeah well, well i am going to do i have already kind of started on planning as another book which is purely uh, it's a more mechanical book mm, about okay. uh, it's going you know I'm, the working title which won't carry through to the publication is motocross yes it is rocket science and it's uh, and it's looking at kind of the mechanical side of motocross and why things are the way they are you know why mm-hmm. why upside down shocks why why are tires the way they are why do, you know why all of this stuff why and how and explaining it all and uh, in looking at mm-hmm. history and modern bikes, so we're, I'm uh, I'm working on that, and that'll be you know four or five years from now. Hopefully, we'll be sat here talking about that too. Nice. Well, as a former uh, mechanic for uh, a bunch of teams, uh, that sounds interesting to me. That's for sure. Um, have you talked to Coombs about buying your uh, your archives? I mean, I mean, is this something that you want to do? Yeah, we, yeah, he, he we did men- he did mention it. Um, I don't I don't know what to do with all that right now. I mean, right. It would be, I want to I want to make sure that when I finally go, that it's uh, it's in somebody's good hands, and uh, maybe Dave is the the guy to do that. He he kindly lent me all. Uh, 
a bunch of pictures that uh, that uh, Dick Miller shot back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the things that I wasn't available, uh, uh, events that I wasn't at. So, uh, so there are some pictures through Race Rex, and that's uh, that's been uh, that's been really cool to oh, uh, to be able to get all that. So, yeah, maybe Davey. We'll he, we'll see how that goes. He loves it, and uh, you know, David. Uh, yeah, he's got he's got super hunkies. He's got he's got uh, uh, Millers, right? He's got a bunch. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely loves it. Well, thanks for the time, David. David Dewhurst, uh, uh, really thankful for the for the opportunity to do this fly racing racer X podcast with you. As I said, this isn't um, this isn't a paid infomercial. I bought the book. I love it, and reached out to uh, to do this with you because uh, any motocross fan I think would uh, would really like flipping through the pages here and the photos you have never before seen stuff. So, uh, yeah, man, thanks for the time. Good luck with everything. Keep in touch if I can help at all. And uh, and thanks again, man. Yes, thanks a lot, Steve. Appreciate it. This has been the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show, presented by Maxis Tires, Renthal, Motorsport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. Thanks for listening and supporting our partners. Don't change the air. Don't change a thing.